Hi everyone, and welcome to Aval Cafe. My name is Brian Hostler, founder of Strong Roots Consulting based in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, which is on Treaty 6 territory in the traditional homeland of the Métis. I'm joined as always by my co-host. Hi everyone, I'm Carolyn Kamen, an independent evaluation consultant working out of Vancouver, BC, coming to you from unceded Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations territory. This podcast is an informal chat on evaluation topics, the kind you might overhear at your favorite coffee shop if your favorite coffee shop were frequented by evaluators and if we were allowed to actually congregate in coffee shops right now. Just saying, Brian, (laughs) maybe we should have edited this intro for, you know, social distancing. We we probably should, yes. So, but going back on track, this podcast is for everyone, expert or novice, longtime practitioner, or just starting in the field. Even if you don't identify as an evaluator, as long as you have an interest in evaluation, this podcast is for you. So, yes, we are coming to you today. Uh, today is April 19th. We got in that habit of actually stating the date of recording, uh, partly to shame ourselves into releasing a complete episodes sooner, uh, but also because uh, to give some context to Carolyn's edition of a social distancing warning to our normal introduction script. Anyway, though, this episode is not about the modifications we're making to the Eval Cafe, including uh, plexiglass screens and uh, appropriate uh, distancing and takeout. Uh, but instead, we are, well, we are happy to be joined today by Carolyn Hostler. Uh, Carolyn is the founder and senior specialist at Higher Education Beyond and works with higher education institutions and national and parental professional associations and organizations. Um, Carolyn's skill and focus includes working with diverse opinions and perspectives about what a program or initiative is intended to do and how to communicate, design for, and evaluate those intended outcomes. Um, trying to think what else. Uh, oh, yeah, Carolyn's also my partner in life, as you may have guessed from the last name. And uh, yeah, I think that's kind of a good start for introduction. So welcome, Carolyn Hostler. Thank you very much, Ryan, and thank you very much, Carolyn. It's a bit of a fun podcast to join. It's one I've been listening to for a while. And also, it's also fun to be in a space where both my last name and my first name are connected to other people in the same space. <laughs> so I think we're going to go by Carolyn H. as we uh, as we refer to me as we go through this podcast. Um, I'm joining you from Treaty 6 Territory in the homeland of the Métis, also known as Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And I also spend my time down in Dish with One Spoon Territory, including uh, ancestral and uh, traditional territories of the Mississauga of the Credit, the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabe, and the Huron-Wendat. And I want to recognize the land in which I travel on and also work on. So I'm looking forward to today's conversation, which kind of emerged a bit on a dog walk, I believe. <laughs> yeah. Do you guys want to loop me into that? I got a, an audio clip in a Slack channel that was like, hey, we've got an idea for an episode. And I'm going to admit right now that it sounded cool, but I was also very tired. So I don't fully grasp where the conversation is going. All right. So what came about for um, the conversation is we've been kicking around, I think the three of us, the idea of a podcast for a while. And um, Brian and I were out walking our pug named Gizmo. And we were chatting about like, well, what would we talk about? And as we're walking, he goes, well, what's going on for you for evaluation? And I started to talk about why evaluation mattered and how it was so helpful to identify kind of what is what is the intended outcomes or intended value that a group brings because what happens right now is all of us are having to change how we're doing everything 
And we're even having to change um, like formats if it's going online. And the end result is that changes and maybe has impact for the what we can actually accomplish in this time. So anyway, so we um, quickly started talking about it, recently realized I should probably write, um, get this recorded because I won't remember it by the time we're done on a dog walk. So <laughs> we recorded and then uh, sent to uh, Carolyn Kahneman the, the recording. So that's how we got to this conversation for today. And I wonder, Carolyn, if you want to um, tell folks, our listeners, a little bit about how you have come to evaluation. I think that would be interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So my route to evaluation is um, a long time side of my desk uh, work in evaluation. So I have worked for the last 13 years in higher education institutions and um, with other associations as well. And my job is usually coming in because we're setting learning outcomes for a program. So I work a lot with academic programs, faculty members and others who are saying, we want to teach X. And I go, great. By the time they're done learning X, what do you want them to know, do, be thinking differently, be engaging in the world differently? So I've done a lot of work around learning outcomes and then helping people figure out how to assess that, either on things like tests or otherwise students assessment or program evaluation. So how is their program achieving what they want to know and what the process of that looks like and the outcomes of that? Over time, through both formal and informal ways, I've learned a lot about evaluation and continue to kind of work on it as a practitioner. So unlike almost many areas, I don't have, um, one of my degrees is not in evaluation. I come from a line of uh, psychology and education background, but I've done a lot of kind of informal and formal training. And it also kind of helps to have somebody who has quite a few evaluation uh, books living in the same house. So, <laughs> so boring that and learning a lot about evaluation over the years and having great colleagues as well who um, took me under the wing and taught me. And uh, so I've often been the person who groups have tagged on the, tapped on the shoulder and said, hey, can you uh, come help us with this program? Or we're trying to figure out if this is working or we're looking to show the value of this. And I would be brought in for a short time, long time, over a year into a project just to help them with evaluation. So that's how kind of I got here. And then last year I did the paperwork and I got officially two more initials after my name. So get to join the ranks of CE, but I have a feeling that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> oh, yes. I think it will be. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I was just saying that it's, it's interesting that, uh, yeah, working in higher education, that's kind of one of the areas or education generally where we do have uh, talk about assessment or evaluation of, of students. Um, also the same, the other way around too, especially in uh, post-secondary settings, uh, evaluation of, of teachers as well, or professors um, or assessment, I think is the term that's often used, but we tend to, um, I've seen some um, areas where they do seem to be kind of connected in, like where we do talk about evaluation in higher education settings, but not kind of as much as you would think. There seems to be kind of a, a gap, at least in my mind, between like, evaluation in that kind of teaching sense and evaluation like what we talk about here on the podcast. Uh, do you have any uh, thoughts on that or is that something you see as well? Um, I think there's a lot of our people finding ways to assess what others know and think. If we use that really broad definition. Um, there's a lot of it that goes on in higher education. So I've been part of revamping course evaluations um, so that faculty members and instructors have feedback as well as their programs have feedback 
I've done small scale initiatives that get feedback. I've had um, sessions where helping faculty members and instructors design feedback so that students can get, uh, sorry, assessments so that students can get feedback from their peers or from the instructor. And so there's a lot of feedback going on in higher education. Not all of it is um, compiled and reported in grand themes or designed in ways that come out in those reports that I often see in other contexts. A lot of them is uh, internal reports that are generated, uh, little fact sheets that go around, a lot of times presentations that are done in meetings. So they don't tend to come out in those kind of larger scale uh, reports that we see in some other contexts but it's um, definitely a lot of different forms of evaluation. To make things more complex, in the UK versus in the um, United States, evaluation and assessment meanings are flipped. And in Canada, we use them interchangeably. So we have to often say assessment of student learning or evaluation of student learning and assessment of courses or evaluation of courses and then assessment of programs or evaluation of programs, just to be sure we know which type of assessment or evaluation we're talking about. Because mm-hmm. the value end really changes if you're looking at, we're assessing an individual student's progress to see that they're on track or that we want to certify or credential them versus, hey, we need to look at this entire initiative or program to see that it's doing what we want it to do. Um but the essence of the idea that, hey, we want to find out what's happening here uh, seems to be consistent. Very true. So, and it's also both the scale of how many people's perspectives are being collected, what they're talking about differs. And then also we often talk about in higher education, the difference between formative and summative. So formative is I'm giving you feedback with the intention for you to use it to improve versus summative is um, feedback where it's intended to be a statement about your ability and or your quality of some sort. So those kind of interchange a little bit murky, sometimes they're blended in, but the idea that there's formative feedback and summative and sometimes it's clear and distinct and sometimes it's just kind of all mashed together in the same evaluation or assessment. Mm -hmm. That also feels like it's consistent across evaluation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Good to know. That got me curious, actually, and this is a side sidebar, but I think this whole episode may be one long sidebar. Uh, I mean, in evaluation, we often use educational metaphors to explain formative and summative. Formative is the feedback you get on a, a midterm test or exam, and then you still have time to be able to make some some changes in response, and then summative is your final grade in the course. Is there any any use of, like, developmental evaluation in like is there like a a, a analog for developmental evaluation in higher education um oftentimes there's things called low stakes um, mentorship um, ongoing feedback um, guidance critique some of those things can be done in ways where they're not recorded for instance Um, those are often that kind of more ongoing approach so for instance, a student might, um, usually it falls within the broad category of formative, but a student might hand in a weekly reflection. And the feedback that they get or the ongoing dialogue that they get with that is not is, is treated differently to some extent. It's often like, did you complete this assignment? Yes or no. Um, but then they also have a layer of like ongoing dialogue that's designed more to get at guidance and feedback. Mm-hmm. So it falls within formative, but it's... Um, not really a separate category. I feel like developmental evaluation in an education context might be more like Montessori. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
And and there are ones where it's um, there's some work that's done in like mastery learning, where an individual goes into the process of trying to develop their own abilities, and they seek feedback, and they get feedback, and they continue on in that way. So it can be a bit different. We also have traditional learning contexts where we are following um, non-Western kind styles of learning, and then there the form of assessment as well as feedback can look quite different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another difference is likely to be the who is doing the learning. Um, and I'm, I'm also trying to lean us a little bit more towards our original topic we were going to talk about. <laughs> we were going to talk about sense-making. And yeah. one, of the, um, one of the things that really distinguishes um, evaluation approaches for me is whether it's um, a single person who's doing the sense-making or collective sense-making. Mm-hmm. Um, and developmental evaluation in particular, I would argue, really can only be done with collective sense-making. Um, and I don't know how much collective sense-making goes on in an educational assessment context. When you talk about collective um, sense-making, are you talking about where everybody contributes to a shared vision? Or are you talking about where all the different stakeholders have a conversation and inform each other's thinking on it? Ooh, distinguish those two for me more clearly. Okay, so... I'm going to give the example in a higher ed context. So one of the things that we can do is we can get multiple stakeholders to weigh in on something. So in developing a new course evaluation program, I can ask um, students what their perspectives and concerns are. I can ask faculty what they are. I can ask administrators. I can ask different groups on campus to all weigh in to kind of a collective decision and almost over time kind of bring back a set of principles to what each group is talking to. But the idea is to come up with a shared set of principles that addresses everything that emerges. So each group is informing the discussion, but they're not present in the same space. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to, that's middle ground at one end of the continuum would be, I just go and ask everybody like on a survey and then pull all that data together. And then I sense make around it. And at the other end of the spectrum is where you put everybody in a room together and you have mixed groups and you ask them to sense make into an understanding of, of what it meant to have this program or what are the common concerns. Yeah. So collective sense making, I would distinguish from any individual synthesis, even if that's an individual synthesis of a, a, an array of data sources, the sense making itself would be the collective part. So people are are in a room or in a space together um, making sense and doing that analysis uh, collectively. Okay. So I would say most of the times that I've seen sense-making in universities, sometimes as town halls or other contexts where there's opportunities to share ideas, but a lot of it is um, individuals reporting back out or from a group, or it's often a case of bringing those multiple stakeholder perspectives and then essentially informing drafts of it. So a draft will go to a group, they would give edits or input to it, then it would revise and then it would go on to the next group. So it's kind of more like a chain mail letter where people keep <laughs> adding in ideas than it necessarily is like a collective, um, almost world cafe with everybody in it. Um, mm-hmm. That can happen, but it doesn't always um, take place. And partly it's just the number of stakeholders and just that the style of conversation is fundamentally different in different spaces and power dynamics happen too. Mm-hmm. And I think there's such a thing as asynchronous collective sense-making. I'm thinking even of um, some 
uh, writing projects I've been involved in where we weren't necessarily sitting down in the room together writing, but we were working on a common draft in dialogue with each other asynchronously through comments and notes, um, which I, I think is different still, again, from one person sort of taking in data sources and individually synthesizing them. Mm-hmm. So is that kind of the the hallmark of collective sense making where there isn't one uh, there's not a hierarchical uh, approach necessarily where there isn't a case where there is one person who is the quote unquote data person or the one who's absolutely responsible for making sense of what the data is showing? Yeah, essentially. So is it a, is it a, you're in it or you're out of it, black and white kind of thing, or is it like a continuum? That's a really good question. Um, I, and I'm almost tempted immediately to say both. <laughs> That's a good answer. Just elaborate. Um, that it is both a particle and a wave. I mm. think there's there's an element of. I mean, it's quite different. And and I'll say like, I mean, I'm sure our most of our listeners probably know this. Collective sense making isn't the norm in evaluation or in most Western science knowledge production, um, which is. Uh, why I find it really interesting. And it's the area that I've been trying to specialize more in uh, and has required me to really dig deep and, and search widely um, for different methods and approach approaches and even like just ways of thinking about it. Um, because most of what we do in evaluation, most of the ways it's set up is um, geared around this idea that ultimately it's going to come down to one person to decide okay, this is what I think this means. Write that up, put it in the report. Um, mm -hmm. But it's very, very powerful um, to do collective sense-making and particularly um, in complexity spaces. Uh, there's a, a, definitely a strong argument that the only way to do effective sense-making in complexity is collective sense-making. Um, that we mm -hmm. uh, won't simply won't have the necessary nuance and perspective and um, adaptability and responsiveness if we aren't um, finding ways to support that group sense-making approach. And I think that's something really important is as soon as we understand that multiple people have input and insight into a topic, we then have multiple stakeholders. And as soon as we have multiple stakeholders, we have multiple perspectives. And by having those multiple perspectives, if we give them agency, they become multiple sense makers. Mm -hmm. And this is also that space of we have at that point multiple truths. And this is, I think, where, where people can stumble of this idea like, but how do you, you know, how do you make sure that everyone agrees at some point? Um, or how do you make sure that the process doesn't become too inefficient? Um, or confused or layered? And part of the point of it is you won't all agree. The idea of collective sense-making is not to arrive at a single truth, but to be able to navigate multiple truths, which is much easier to do with a group of people with different perspectives than a single person who's only going to be able to imagine so many different possibilities at once. Well, and I, th I think there's an interesting piece here, though, is we're talking epistemology now, right? When mm -hmm. we talk about the idea of multiple truths versus a single truth, and there's a distinction between having a single truth and then just everybody having a different angle on that truth or a different piece of that knowledge and that there is fundamentally different truths in the space. So 
in this way, can you have a collective sense making that is from like from multiple truths perspective? Yes. Everybody brings their truth, and from that you create a collective truth. Um, can you also have collective sense making from the perspective where you have a single truth, but everybody brings like you know their piece of the puzzle too? Before we go any further on that, I'm just kind of curious. I don't think we've actually defined what sense making is in this episode yet. Uh, does anyone have a kind of particularly good definition of that or just kind of how does it speak to you? I mean, there's the obvious definition of the two words, but how are we using sense making here? That's such a good question. And I super duper meant to like look up some thoughtful resources <laughs> ahead of time. Um, but it's the weekend and it's a pandemic and I was tired. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I think one of the things that I look at is around um, meaning making. So there's two elements to sense making. One is I would draw on um, my colleagues Connie Taylor's model around wisdom and the idea of integration. So we can sense make about the world in order to understand some lessons and then to integrate those lessons into who we are as a person or who we are as a program. But I think there's another side to sense making, which is the idea that we are truth creating or um, theory creating. So this idea of we're trying to come up with a way of understanding the world. And that can be at an individual level or it could be at that more broader level, which is to say, what is our uh, you know, theory of change of our program? What is our definition of uh, quality teaching? What is our definition of knowing? All of those things having a common definition and, and that idea of getting to that common understanding is so important. And I think that's what I look at when I think of sense making is that individual journey of integration as well as the collective idea of a shared definition. Mm-hmm. It happens at a lot of layers at once. Um, when I think about sense making, I think about um, that second question of the adaptive action cycle. Um, so that's the the what, so what, and mm-hmm. now what. Um, and to me, the what is always like that observation side of things, the sort of like, okay, what is here? What is present? What might be the facts or the data or the information before us? And then the so what is when we dive into what does this mean to us? And I agree that there's multiple levels to that. There's... Um, there's the just interpreting potential relationships and patterns between, you know, pieces of information. I'm thinking when I have, so when I do um, data party exercises around the adaptive action cycle, the what will be getting people to sort of put things on post-it notes. Um, like here, here are specific observable facts from the, all the data that's been collected. Uh-huh. And getting them to sort of harvest that out. Um, And then we move from there into like, okay, you have all these post-it notes. Now start putting them up on the wall and seeing, okay, what goes together? What doesn't go together? Um, What are the, what are the, um, the, the, the themes and the trends, but also what are the exceptions and the outliers? There's a beautiful set of um, pattern spotting questions uh, that also get, gets used by, um, uh, the folks at the Human Systems Dynamics Institute who who do a lot of work with the adaptive action cycle um, that are good for for spotting like what are, what what are these patterns and, and trends and, and themes um, 
among things but then there's a there's another layer to that interpretation which is not just like okay what are the what are the the clusters and and the outliers but what do we think that means why do we think these things look the way they do or connect or don't connect the way they do uh and that starts to get into yeah our deeper theories um and our assumptions um and the the narrative that we construct around the bare bones of the facts and data. Um, mm-hmm. And then from there, the now what becomes how do we translate that into specific things we want to try? Actions and possibilities that come to light when we start to think about why we think certain patterns exist. Which then feeds back into the what again, as we start to learn from what we did in response to the now what and yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it never ends. <laughs> But so that's the sense-making piece to me is that that going into those patterns. And you can go really, really deep. That's always the part I want to spend the most time on. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the idea of, of recognizing, as you said, it's not just about the facts. It's, a, it's not just about the word. It's about the meaning that word has. It's about the connotations that word has. So it's just it's not just that that word is this definition the dictionary but it's one that is inspiring or it's one that is scary or it's one that is exciting or it's one that is limiting and it's thinking through kind of the meaning that all of that has and how that all connects together um i think is part of the sense making mm-hmm. what i love about sense making is that it's literally the world that we live in um it's the part of the world that i think we're most conscious of Um, which is not the actual sort of sensory experiences of our lives, although we're definitely conscious of those, but all the meaning that we layer on top of that. Mm -hmm. We live in our sense-making. Whenever something happens, we try to understand why it's happening. Um, You know, we have that beautiful ability as as human beings. One of our characteristics is we can see faces in anything. Um, We... we, (laughs) We see patterns in random noise because we are attuned to patterns. Um, we are attuned to narrative and story and structure and coherence, even in spaces where there isn't any structure or co- coherence. Um, and that's where so much of our beautiful art um, and culture comes from in the story making that we do. Mm-hmm. So if we think about that idea of sense making, of creating structure out of chaos, faces out of tree bark, um, all of that that we, we do, how does it happen when the world around us shifts so dramatically that our past um, sense-making doesn't necessarily apply? Well, I think right now we require more, or sense-making is becoming more important because I think before, if we had the what and we could fit it into some kind of mental model like okay when this happens it means this then we can easily just kind of like okay that fits in more or less maybe there's some jagged edges that don't quite uh, align neatly but we say okay well that's close enough of it now we know what to do versus now we have this what which is a global pandemic and this is like nothing we have so we're trying to figure out the so what does this mean and we're, we're kind of stuck in that loop or a lot of people i think are stuck, uh, stuck in that loop or collectively we're working through this loop of trying to figure out what do these imperfect data sources around 
case numbers and and infection rates and and testing and all that so what like so what do we do with that how do we how do we respond so one of the things i think is just really interesting is what you were saying earlier about how we need to what does it mean to have these kind of collaborative discussions and in the model of like adaptive change what we're having to talk about is these collective senses of of meaning and they talk about where where you end up with a technical change or just you know things as usual change you can usually tell people what to do you can okay go okay so we're going to do that fire drill that we've talked about 15 times or we're going to do that thing that we talked about when the printer breaks but as soon as you get this like really unprecedented setting the big changes you actually have to go up what they call the community engagement continuum into involve collaborate and empower and that's like the iap2 public participation spectrum but it's the idea that you go from inform all the way up to involve collaborate and power the moment we're no longer business as usual, no longer sense making as usual, we actually have to have more people in on that decision making. So this might be why what you're talking about is so important to do evaluation in a way that has a collective sense making, um, because we are in situations where it's not a technical change. It's not business as usual. Mm-hmm. We've moved from, um, if you're familiar with the the Kinevin framework, um, which is a sense-making framework um, that um, the Kinevin one specifically has been developed by Dave Snowden. Um, it has some overlaps with some other models out there. Um, so parts of it are, are would be familiar. Anyone who has sort of heard Michael Quinn Patton talk about um, developmental evaluation um, and give that example of, okay, so it's sometimes there are simple things like making a cake and you follow a recipe. And, and as long as you replicate the steps of the recipe, it turns out great every time. Although in practice, my cakes do not turn out great every time, but in theory. <laughs> um, and so that's the simple kind of thing. And then there are complicated things like building a rocket or a car where uh, you can't just follow a recipe and do it. Um, but with enough people working together, cooperating, um, you can follow, figure out and follow certain steps to build uh, the same car or the same rocket over and over again. Um, and so it requires more technical expertise, but you're still in the space of something that's replicable versus raising a child. Um, you, anyone who has raised a child, um, I always, it's always interesting to me to use this example for folks who have kids because they get it instantly. Folks who don't have kids may or may not. But folks who have kids are always like, oh, no, no, yes, I completely understand what you mean, which is that what works to raise one child doesn't work to raise the next child. What works to raise a child one day doesn't work with them the next day um, because they are um, complex adaptive systems um, who are always <laughs> changing um, and responding in new ways. Um, so you have to continue to change and respond with them versus something that's more of a static, knowable um, challenge like building a car or, or, a, um, or a rocket ship. So that's like the version most people see. So uh, the Kinevin framework, and I think that I, I actually wanted to trace this back at some point because I was kind of confused about the different, there's a whole bunch of different models. They kind of came from the same 
place at one point and branched off in different directions. That version, I think, is the the version that Brenda Zimmerman kind of brought it to. Um, so Dave Snowden's framework was inspired from a similar place. It, it goes a somewhat different direction, but some of the essence is pretty similar. And he describes five domains. Um, and the first, so there's the, I think it's called now the clear domain. It was simple and then it was obvious that now it's clear because they wanted them all to start with C. Um, <laughs> but there's that clear domain, which are like things we already know how to do. Um, things that we, um, all we have to do is correctly um, categorize what kind of problem it is and then apply the known solution. So if I walk into a room and it's dark, the, the clear, the obvious thing to do is to flip the light switch. Ta-da. <laughs> um, I know how to solve that problem. I solve it without um, too much strain. It's a really easy, systemizable kind of approach. If it's complicated, it's not quite so straightforward, but it's, you can, it's, it's not known, but it's knowable. So that might be like, oh, I want to design a new energy efficient light bulb. I don't instantly know how to do that, but mm -hmm. there are experts out there who could figure it out. If enough people sort of work on it and you can work on it in a systematic linear way, you can develop a more energy efficient light bulb. And to evaluate that, you would, you would even know ahead of time, okay, we, we know what energy efficiency, how we might measure that. Um, we just have to like keep designing something until we get something that we think meets that criteria. And you could go different routes. You could have different kinds of energy efficient light bulbs. You could argue which one is better, which one's more cost effective, environmentally effective, yada, yada. Um, that's the complicated domain. That's the area where a lot of our evaluation efforts are focused. How do we evaluate things that once we solve it, we'll know how it's been solved and we could very clearly assess whether it's successful or not. Um, but that's all on the ordered side of things. What we've done now is move into the unordered side of things, which is where we have complexity, where things are constantly changing. Um, like, you know, you can take apart a car and put a car back together again but you can't take apart a forest and put a forest back together again, because it's not just about its component parts. It's about how all those things are related and connected to each other. And then there's another domain of chaos, which is actually the space that we're all in right now for the most part, mm -hmm. um, or in that liminal space between chaos and complexity where things are just happening and we have to react and respond to them. Um, and cause and effect honestly don't really even so much matter so much as acting. And then there's another domain in the center, which is disorder, which is when we have no idea what domain we're in um, and we'll just react in whatever way is habitual. And that's the more the most dangerous of all the domains. Mm -hmm. And at the risk of uh, just following our habits, um, I think a lot of the work that I I get brought into doing is when people say, OK, we're really excited. We want to do X. We've never done it before. We don't know exactly what it will be like. Um, and it's a lot of it getting the groundwork done in the same way some groups will work with strategic planning. I do a lot of work of defining what those principles are. So I get to ask questions of like, if this goes well, what does that energy efficient light bulb look like? What does your program look like? What does your graduation look like? If this goes poorly, what does that mean? What's the worst, like what, what would go wrong to make it go wrong? Not technically, but just it would do this and then we would consider that a failure. So defining kind of like the best case and worst case of what might happen 
and then deriving from that a set of principles, because often the principle is both our worst case and our, our best case. The best case is that our light bulb is trusted, and the worst case is that it's untrusted. It's reliable or it's unreliable. And so working with people to even just try to sense make a collective understanding of what they're aiming for is one of the key things I often get to do is, is walk into the space before we even start the evaluation, before we even start the planning, is to try to get at um, what are those key principles we're aiming for? And then from there, we can start as saying, is this activity going to do it? Um, right now, a lot of people are in um, moving in online in asynchronous or synchronous ways programs and activities that we've never done online before or not done traditionally online. And so some people are going back to their habits. They're saying, well, if I normally would stand here and talk for three hours, I'm going to stand here and talk for three hours. If we normally have to have everybody physically be shown to move across something and physically receive something, we'll just electronically have them receive it and we'll still pan the camera across each person. (laughs) Whereas that replicates the how, but it's not replicating the what you were talking about, the so what, the why are we doing this? And so a lot of what I do is try to figure out with people, it's like, okay, so you want to do your graduation ceremony online. You want to move your program online. What makes that the best experience possible? And then if it is, well, everybody can see and celebrate somebody. They communicate why they think that it was wonderful being in the program with them. Then we need to embed those opportunities into it. That panning a camera across different people's headshots in in like a you know one of those Brady Bunch looks isn't going to do that. People need an opportunity to express to each other something meaningful. So I, I work with people a lot because sometimes once we get into the why we're doing it, like in other words, what are we trying to achieve with this? then we can actually get into a format that works because otherwise we pick a solution that actually may foreground and forefront something that we actually don't intend it to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You need to engage like what is the actual purpose behind what we're doing? Mm -hmm. The challenge for me in the complexity space, or I think the challenge in the complexity space is we can have a sense of purpose, but not know what that will actually look like when it's fulfilled. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I'm just thinking of another example for, um, in the complexity space that builds on the light bulb model, which might be, you know, how do we reimagine our use of electricity in a changing climate scenario? Like a kind of question that doesn't immediately suggest, okay, well, this is the kind of outcome that we would expect and hope to see, but where we actually need to be open to the outcomes we can't even imagine yet. Um, because we're operating on the edge of what we already know how to do, um, which is where um, I find the practices of evaluation that work when when we know what we're getting to and when we expect to be able to replicate the conditions um, or replicate what we develop of like, okay, once we get this sort of figured out, then we can keep doing it. Um, break down when we suddenly are in a space where it's like, oh, actually, we can't say at the outset what our expected outcomes are. We can suggest some things we might like to see, um, but we also need to be really open to not just 
the possibility that unexpected things might happen. We have to actively seek the unexpected and create the conditions where the unexpected can emerge because that's where the, the actual learning we need is. And I, and I think it's really powerful to say, I don't know. And I think when we do transdisciplinary work where we bring in teams of people who have vastly different experiences, then you know we can have conversations that say, well, you know, actually the seamstresses know how to make something with the least amount of material, you know, compared to all the people of us who know about you know biology, that might be very different from the people who understand how much people touch their faces when they wear something on their faces. So building a better mask, for instance, requires insight that we do not have. And when we walk in assuming we have the answer that's different than we walk in assuming we have part of the picture. And I think a lot of the work that we do, sometimes people come and start with the solution or the, the answer before we actually define the problem or define the principles. And then walking back to define the principles, we often see that the answer hasn't existed yet. And I think it hasn't existed in this form, in this tile, in this place, but it might exist in something related. So we often borrow from one discipline to another. That's why analogies are so popular when we don't have a word for something. And we also can borrow from um, one set of knowledge into another set of knowledge. We're seeing a lot of that right now. That's kind of got me thinking um, just earlier when you're talking about uh, needing to do some of that uh, work around, around the why or you know the, the principles you're, you, I think, called them. Um, in terms of what are we trying, like what's important and what we're aiming for. And I was thinking like, okay, so do we need like a pre-step to the what, so what, now what? Um, like, do we need a why or where are we trying to go with this? But now what you just said, I'm wondering, like, is it the case where the what, so what, now what, isn't that linear order? Maybe just we're we're doing the so what upfront based on previous things. And then that's going to inform what we try to collect that we're going to do. So what on, and then now what, but the now what could also come earlier. And yeah, I'm wondering if that's, you know, we just need to throw out the whole idea of a nice linear ordered. We'll collect the information, we'll make some sense of it, and then we'll have the obvious direction where to go from there. Or that's what we've been talking about this entire episode, but um, just kind of an insight that came to me there. I think it's nonlinear. I was going to say, I think of the what, so what, now what. It's, it's a, it is actually a cycle. Like there's a there's an arrow between the now what and the what. Um, so mm-hmm. you kind of jump into it at a certain point and, and what is usually the easiest place to jump in. But I I think it's funny. I, I want to say again, it is both um, just to be that person in the sense of <laughs> we do, um, a linear just means a line um, and lines actually can be curved. Um, I know we talk about linear as being, um, things that are connected. We, as individuals, we do often move through the world in a linear way. That's again, where I feel like it's this difference, um, between moving through something as an individual and moving through it as a collective. Um, and, and what makes emergence the way that I initially wrapped my head around emergence is to think about water. Um, Cause I had this like example in my head that was just like, Oh, okay. I get it. Like is water wet? <laughs> Depends what state it's in. Is water at room temperature wet? <laughs> <laughs> it 
feels like a trick question. This is not a trick question. Is water wet? <laughs> okay, I'll go on and say yes. Okay. Is a water molecule wet? No, it's an emergent it's emergent property of it. Wetness is an emergent property of the interaction between water molecules or viscosity or whatever the name of scientific name of it is. Um so we do as 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 a person, I may think through something in these sort of like individual steps. And, and there's a certain maybe linearity to that experience. Like I, I experience time one second at a time or one minute, like, um, but what we do as, as people, as, as collections of people who are connected in interesting ways, um, there are things that, that come out of those interactions that are, are, would be totally unpredictable just from looking at any of our own individual pathways through it. So I don't think, I don't think it ever is really linear when it's collective. There's just so many, and I'm sure someone with like a better complexity background than me would be able to like either refute that entirely or explain it better or both. We welcome them on the show if they're listening. When we think about complexity, one of the things I like to think about is there is this idea of um, mergence. So you have the idea that things are greater than the sum of any individual components. There's the idea that things are not static. So the idea that one person's perspective could be different today and tomorrow. We have the idea that people are intersectional beings. So when they're in a space, they may represent one more or more of those perspectives. But those perspectives may shift into other spaces where other elements of their identity are salient. And then you add in a level, as you go up the Kinevin framework, of just further and further emergence. So we're not just talking linear interactions. We're talking um, vastly growing sets of, of sparking, basically. And I think one of the things to think about when I go into a context is I've had to learn to not assume what the final outcome is going to be. So if I go in expecting like um, almost a, you know, a deductive, there'll be five categories, there'll be six principles, there will be, um, you know, an option that looks like it fits in this kind of box, then you may only find those things. And when we're in a context where, as you said, we don't have the boxes yet, we don't have the, the take-home model on how to do this, then I think we're looking at something that's much more inductive. And what we know from good inductive research is it's an iterative process. It's an initial sense-making that then goes out and tests it in some way. And that may be through greater participation, a broadening set of samples. It might be through um, additional perspectives. It might be through additional sense-makers. But somehow we're continuously shaping it until it feels like it has form and that form has sufficient meaning mm -hmm. and then it has sufficient feasibility to be used. And that kind of like, I, I'll, I almost say, like I often use analogy of some of my work is like trying to trace w water that is in a pond and figuring out what the level of the pond is. And some of my work is like tracing water down a mountain from a rainstorm at the top and figuring mm -hmm. how much of it ends up in the ocean. 
<laughs> and this idea of water running down in stored in leaves and running down troughs and trying to figure out where it goes and where it pools and how it's eventually going to get to the ocean. That's a lot of what sometimes evaluation in complex spaces are. And it's, it's getting a sense of we cannot have one single measure at the end. Mm. And we cannot have an assumption that that time span is going to be consistent. So thinking through how do we create meaning, so principles, plans in that complexity so that they come out in very practical, tangible ones. So they come out with here are the six principles. Here are the five criteria that we have. Here are the, the list of measurable things that we've talked about. That takes both an openness to what's emerging and also a very um, good consideration of how do you put those into words and how do you have those words have meaning back to people and how do you double check that what you think has a certain meaning has a meaning for everybody answering that question. Mm -hmm. So it's very iterative. Very iterative. And I would also throw in, there's a third form of reasoning that I see come up, which is abductive reasoning, mm. um, as opposed mm -hmm. to inductive reasoning, um, which is um, similar to inductive reasoning. And I always struggle with defining it, but uh, my understanding of abductive, re and it's A-B-D-U-C-T-I-V-E for anyone listening, like abduction. Yeah. Um, but it's... Um, you're still working from a set of observations um, and you're trying to come up with essentially just the, the most plausible explanation for those observations. Um, but you're not trying to conclusively um, establish it. Um, and that is the sort of level of um, uncertainty that we end up operating with in in complex spaces in developmental evaluation and that to me is where the purpose is so important because for that to be useful to not just be coming in saying like oh it's uncertain deal with it uh, which is not helpful <laughs> to anyone <laughs> what it's not so much like how do we know what is true like how do we know does this work? Uh, can we can we prove that it works? Which I don't actually think we do in any evaluation. I don't think any evaluation actually offers proof of something. Um, I think that's a complete uh, misconception or, or, or approach that we ever actually attain that level of certainty, no matter what we're evaluating. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's what would be useful? What would serve that guiding purpose that is behind, you know, and um, driving all of this. And that's where having that clarity of purpose, um, even before we get into something like adaptive action and, and what and so what and now what, the question you were asking earlier, Brian, about, you know, where where does that why come in? I think the why, that is the very first most important thing that I'm always curious about with anyone is like, why are we actually doing this? Like, truly, why? What is, what is the heart of this? Um, mm -hmm. Because that's the only way that we know how to make the rest of the process useful. Um, knowing that it's going to be somewhat uncertain, knowing that there's going to be lots of different sort of droplets that we could trace and, and we don't simply have the, the time or the, the ability to trace all of them. But it's like, what actually would help us? Like, how much do we need to know about how that water came down the mountain um, mm -hmm. and into the ocean? And making sure that we calibrate to that. I think that's the thing. I often say there's a thousand and one things you could ask it's coming down to what actually is the most important to ask. And who do you need to ask? 
So I often say like, not only what do you need to ask, when do you need to ask it, and who do you need to ask? So for instance, if your concern is how much water is being absorbed and is there enough for the trees in the mountain, you don't need to ask at the ocean level, is the water reaching the ocean? You need to ask at the tree level, is the water getting to the trees that need it? And so we're thinking about asking who you need to ask as well as when you need to ask and what you need to ask helps to frame all the possibilities into something that's kind of manageable. And I like what you're kind of adding in. I, I dropped in, so we'll have in the show notes, uh, the difference between deduction, induction, abduction, according to Merriam-Webster dictionary. But uh, it is an interesting one to think about how much do you have widely accepted facts? And that's kind of what it comes down to in that question of how widely is your definition accepted about your purpose? So a lot of times um, an organization might say, this is my purpose, or my as an instructor, they may say, this is why I'm teaching the course this way. And a question I sometimes ask is, are those who are receiving it, do they have the same purpose? Mm-hmm. Do they have the same goal? So your goal is to inspire people to pursue this as a lifelong passion, or is your goal that they will end up with the technical expectations to proceed to the next step? And those are very different goals, but I don't also know who, what the goals are of the people you work with. And so then the question becomes is, given the multiple goals in the space, given the multiple ways that we seek evidence and understand evidence from different ways of knowing, how do you come to a cohesive, clear, concise, feasible set and then make meaning to go forward in ways that are aligned so that our outcomes our goals are aligned with how we do it and those are aligned with how we assess and evaluate it and um, a lot of my projects um, have anywhere from like five stakeholder groups to um, one of my projects right now has a, a diagram that has 12 12 different stakeholder groups involved in it and that's involved in any single project might be up to 12 stakeholder groups and they each have their own set of outcomes potentially into this space. So how do you come up with cohesion in those spaces? And I think that's where guided approaches make a lot of sense. And I think that's something that um, evaluators do quite well. I'm conscious, by the way, of the fact that I have been uh, quite um, grumpy about evaluation (laughs) as a field a lot lately. Uh, and some of that is like also just grumpy about myself. Um, but I'm also trying to be like, okay, Carolyn, maybe don't be always so grumpy about it. And maybe also <laughs> reflect on all of the things that are super valuable um, about how we have been practicing uh, generally. Uh, that also speaks to the field. This is a, quite a diverse field. But one of the things I do love about what evaluators bring to the table is that um, that systematic thorough attention to detail and asking those questions around like okay so why Mm -hmm. why -hmm. are you doing this why do you think that this will connect to that you know you know make it clear you know make it um surface it make it explicit make it transparent i think that's really what we add and i think for us the adaptation to doing that in a in a complex space where there's um more uncertainty and by necessity uncertainty, not just sort of like, oh, it's uncertain, but we'll figure it out. But like, actually, it might stay uncertain mm-hmm. um, or we might have to accept it versus a space where we can like really break things down into straightforward, 
linear cause and effect. Okay. At some point we'll know this and we'll, and we'll be confident in knowing it. Um, so that to make that transition between those spaces is to bring that systematic thoroughness and that questioning and that wanting to sort of tell me, tell me how this is going to work and just accept that there's going to be fuzzy parts of like, Oh, okay. We don't know that part. You know, I, when I, when I work with clients, what I want to know is, okay, what do you know? And why do you think you know it? <laughs> Always important. Mm -hmm. But equally and without judgment, what don't you know? And how would you like to try to find out about it? Um, and, and to hold both of those pieces and see both of those spaces as part of the learning, not we need to eventually end up knowing everything and not not knowing things, but just building in an appreciation for it's okay to not know. Um, I think that will help us be much more responsive and adaptive um, when we're having to work in situations where, yeah, we have to just be working without having all of the knowledge, without having everything fit into a tidy model because it can't be modeled. And I think it's so important to be knowing what you don't know and to really sit with that respect for that not knowing, whether it's... Um, a disciplinary set of technical skills we don't know, or you mentioned bread making earlier, for example, or if it's a case where it is um, a way of knowing. So the idea of there's certain things that we may come at it from a, a very much a cause and effect type of modeling. And now we're in a space where there's more unknowns and knowns in the variable list. And I think having that ability to lean into others who have either the, the backgrounds or the personalities that are okay in the spaces of tomorrow won't look like today and the next day we don't even know about yet. And I think leaning into the personalities um, and into the skill sets of that not knowing how to not know and still figure out our way forward is so important. I think a lot of my work is walking with people because I know what they do is valuable, but we need to put that into words. And those words are kind of tricky concepts because what we're doing is putting stuff in our heads into words that then have to go into other people's heads and have the same meaning. So I do a lot of like figuring out what words will work in a space and also whose voices count in a space, like whose voices do we need to hear? Whose terminology do we need to use? And to try to think through a lot of that messiness in a space. But I think you're right. It's not a, it's not going to be there are, in linear contexts, in very simple, um, clear contexts, we can come up with an if A then B is the most likely model. But in these cases, we're just saying, can you tell me what we're aiming for? Can you tell me what is most likely to get that? And then can we build in compassion and flexibility and backup plans so that we can actually maybe achieve some of that? And then can at the end of it, ask the questions of what came out of this in a way that both asks about what we intended, but also asks about what emerged. And I think bringing that all together is where evaluators are great at trying to figure out that whole storyline between activities, outcomes, and measures. And how do we tell the story? Because at the end of the day, it's about storytelling, a lot of it. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, 
there's been a lot, I mean, just going back to kind of the beginning of the episode, we're talking about with organizations that are, you know, having to face all sorts of changes right now. What's, um, you know, to anyone listening to this and really agreeing with these ideas, but maybe finding themselves maybe slightly over their head a little bit. I mean, you two were saying before we started recording that you're both kind of tired and like, okay, no, the depth of conversation I'm hearing from the two of you, is just like, Neh. but uh, what, what, what's something to start with? Like what's one way to start engaging in this, you know, in, in the collective sense, making the, the talking about the why what's where something where somewhere that someone new to this, or maybe new to the terminology and new to the, to the ideas, um, can can kind of take away from this and and make use of as they're trying to figure out for themselves or their their organization or their group or their community what to be doing in this in this uh, COVID nineteen world right now. Carolyn, do you want to go first or next? I can I can be the first Carolyn on deck. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'm just thinking like what because one thing I'll say is is. Um, w- human beings are really good at, at figuring shit out. Like um, we're actually great at um, adapting and being responsive um, when we get out of our own ways to be so. <laughs> and I'm speaking from personal experience. Um, so I, I think there's almost this temptation to be like, oh, complexity, that's such a difficult space. I can't do that. It's like, you already do it. You do it every day of your life. Your world that you live in is complex and uncertain and you are constantly having to sort of figure things out on the fly. This is what we do. So there's that element of it. In terms of like practicality, what it looks like, it doesn't actually necessarily take changing your practice that dramatically. I mean, we're all having to change just because of the context, uh, moving online, all of those things. Um, Some of it is just that paradigmatic shift of it's okay to to have things be unknown and it's okay to do more learning in the moment as opposed to pre-planning what all the learning is going to look like and how it's going to come together. I think a lot of it looks like collecting less data, but collecting data more strategically and usefully, mm. not trying to know everything in advance. Like, okay, what are all the different outcomes we need to measure and all the different indicators we need for all of it? Like that stuff is so exhausting and you can end up collecting a bunch of data you don't need. So it's, it's becoming more comfortable um, with planning things um, the way that you do. So this is from going back to the Kinevin framework. So in the, in the clear space, you have, you know, categorize, sense, categorize, respond. You go into the situation, you see what the issue is, you categorize it in your mind of like, this, it's this kind of thing. And then you respond as you need to. In the complicated domain, it's sense, analyze, respond. Um, so you have to go through an analytical uh, procedure to figure out what um, what the correct response is. And that might take some tries. When you move into um, the complex domain, you switch to probe sense respond. So you actually start by trying things. So probes are like little experiments, little, well, what happens if I do this? Um, which if you've ever had a conversation, then you've done an experimental probe. You've thought, what if I say this? And you try that and you see what happens. And depending on how the person, maybe they laugh and you're like, aha, my joke worked. I'll tell another joke. Um, and then maybe that joke falls flat because you can't replicate things. <laughs> um, like it's, it's getting in comfortable with not thinking everything through and then acting, but learning to think and act at the same time. Um, so there's that comfort 
element, uh, take an improv class, just for the love of God, <laughs> take an improv class. Um, and then on the other side, so as a resource, if you're trying to think of how do I work with people, how do I, how do I bring people and do some collective, like lean into your facilitation skills, um, and, uh, liberating structures, go to the liberating structures website. There's a lot of very practical, very specific, um, exercises and practices that you can use to help people think through spaces and think through issues and challenges and and see what inspires you out of that and and build some of that into your practice so like i feel like that's like the most practical entry point Mm -hmm. i can give to that i feel like this episode could become or the show notes particularly could become the syllabus of an online course the three of us offer on (laughs) on how to how to do this on evaluation and uncertainty um so I think uh, I think if we're doing sense making and evaluation and uncertainty, I think one of the things that comes out of this for me is let's say we're planning um, a birthday party. So for all the people having a birthday in April, happy birthday to you! Um, when we think about planning a birthday party in the midst of everything going on, I think there's a couple of ways to think about it. I usually ask the question of if this goes all right, everything goes right in this, what would be the best thing that comes of it? So I always ask people, what's the best thing that comes of it? And one of the things that they'll say is they might say, oh, I got to connect and see everybody that I wanted to see. That would be a very different birthday party if someone tells me that the best thing that would come from it is that they got six uninterrupted hours when nobody talked to them. So if we start with like, what's their best case? We ask them, what's the worst case? What's the, what's the thing that they want not to happen? oh, I don't want anyone mad at me. I don't want anyone upset with me. I wouldn't want um, that uh, people put their lives at risk. We have to ask what's the best thing they want to come out of it and the worst thing they come out of it. Those are two easy questions that can be asked even if you're running down the hallway together. The next thing to think about is um, that this is what matters now. If you're planning for a program that will launch next year or something, also ask what's going to matter in six months or what's going to matter in a year. And again, what's the best case and what's the worst case? So I think starting with those two questions is that like tangible take home, because then I think once you can do that, you can start to make meaning about what this could look like. But at least what you're doing is removing what it won't look like. So if somebody, as you said, if somebody said the best case scenario is they have an entire day with six hours when nobody interrupts them, that's, you now know what it's not going to look like, which is a full day of, of nonstop Zoom chats with people. So you can basically take off some ideas and then you can watch for that one or two things. You watch for the thing that makes it the best and you watch for the thing that makes it the worst. And yeah, there'll be stuff that happens. Otherwise, you'll clean that up when somebody does an interview or a qualitative open-ended answer on a survey. But if you can hit the best and the worst, at least you know you're in the right galaxy. Thank you, Carolyn Hostler, for for joining us today. Uh, Really enjoyed having you here for your thoughts and also giving us a little bit of insight into some other areas of of work as well in terms of higher education and, and all that. So uh, before we we uh, we tie this one up, um, is there anything you'd like to share? Anything exciting coming up? Any kind of events, um, hopefully online at this point, um, that you want to share, or any resources that um, our listeners might be interested in learning about? 
All right. Thank you very much, um, both Brian and Carolyn, for having me. It was wonderful to have a nice, thoughtful discussion about what sense-making looks like in all this uncertainty. I am excited that with a CSBC, um, British Columbia, I'm doing a workshop on dynamic data, which is matched strain pivot tables, so you can have engaging data viz and data discussions. And that's going to be online. So anywhere in the world, you're welcome to join us. It's on Monday, May 25th to Friday, May 29th, and that's at the CSBC's website. Um, and you can register there and get more information. I also think I wanted to uh, acknowledge is that um, it is absolutely important to acknowledge the people who are on the front lines, essential workers, and those who are putting their lives at risk at this moment. As a knowledge worker, I get to calmly sit at my desk and uh, thank those who are put out there um, doing everything from delivering us food and uh, keeping us safe. So thank you for them as well. And thank you. Great. Yeah. Thank you for, for raising that and thank you for joining us. That's it for this episode of Eval Cafe. Thank you to all our listeners. Please check out the rest of our episodes on Pinecast, iTunes, or Google Play, or by going through our website, evalcafe.wordpress.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at evalcafe. And if you want to drop us a line, you can find us at evalcafe.podcast at gmail.com. Musical credits go to Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com for poppers and prosecco or intro theme, and dispersion relation or outro as well as to Tim at tabletopaudio.com for the lively cafe ambiance in our intro. And uh, Carolyn H., do you want to go back to what you were saying before we decided to start recording? Okay. Well, why don't we do a bit of a... Aren't you going to do like an introduction properly and all that? I was going to say we could we could sort of set ourselves up. I don't know. Maybe not. Who knows? Yeah, I guess we can always <laughs> record an intro after. <laughs> we can do that or we can actually try to legitimately set this up as an episode and in linear order but i mean who's editing this one you are you are i am <laughs> i got another number on that one <laughs> <laughs> it's two carolyn's against one brian <laughs>